0: Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath.
1: All right, welcome back to Full Prefrontal, engaging in some amazing conversations exposing the mysteries of executive functions. I am here with our host, Sucheda Kamath. Good morning, Sucheda. Another exciting conversation on tap today with Dr. Bonnie Singer. What's in store for us today?
2: So Todd, I have a favorite cafe in Paris. It's called Bread and Roses. It's in the Saint Germain area. And when I visit Paris, which I have done now of uh, six, seven times, I always make a point to stop there. A few years ago, I was there for breakfast and a um, lovely, lovely couple came and sat next to me. And we struck up a conversation and turns out that was David McCall. He's a celebrated Pulitzer Prize winner and uh, has received many, many awards, including National Book Award and Francis Parkman Award. He has written uh, famous books like Truman and Great Bridge, The Path Between the Seas. An interesting thing about him is, He's one of those few authors whose books have never been out of print. And his writing style and his approach to writing always has intrigued me. And just, I wanted to share the, some of that uh, with our listeners today. He is very well known for something called a bookshop, it's uh, a little shed that he has on Martha's Vineyard, which he uses for his writing. It's an interesting setup has only few, few, few things. Uh, it a, he has a royal typewriter there, a green banker's lamp, and a desk. In this day and age, he does not have any telephone there. There's no running water. David McCall describes uh, or says, nothing good was ever written in the large room. He uses that place to flush out his writing, his arts, and gets himself organized. It's funny that he uh, instructs his family members as they approach the shed to whistle so that they can alert him that they are coming. I just found that very interesting because we're getting ready to talk to Bonnie, who is an expert in writing and uh, how it relates to executive function. And here's a famous writer who talks about his own writing process. And he has kind of come to understand how complex the process is and what works for him. He has tweaked it. He's shaped it. He also gives an interesting uh, kind of story about uh, his process of writing about Theodore Roosevelt. And in his book, he was writing about uh, his asthma, and he came to discover that there were a lot of missing pieces, and there was no clear indication how Theodore Roosevelt developed uh, asthma. So David McCall talks about this being a puzzle that he tries to put together, and he looks at how, what diary entries were made? He talks to men physicians. He goes back and investigates. So executive functions are. Those skills that go into kind of putting that puzzle together where you have scattered information, you have to pull it out, uh, pull in together, you have to organize it, you have to sequence it. And then you have to create a narrative that explains the cause and effect relationship or you it explains your understanding. And it in that understanding needs to be explained in a way that it becomes very simple, clear and crisp for the reader. So I'm very excited that we are getting into this conversation about writing and executive functions and language and its relationship to creating a output that conveys what your own thoughts are.
1: Well, Sucheta, that's fascinating. I'm jealous that you had a lovely Parisian breakfast with David. I, too, have had the pleasure of meeting him many years ago. I've read a bunch of his of his books. My favorite story about him, you mentioned his typewriter, the old fashioned typewriter, Someone went to him once and said, boy, you could write so much faster if you used a modern computer. And he said, no, 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 no. In fact, I don't want to write faster. I would still like to write more slowly. So I fascinating character. I, I've always been an admirer of David McCullough. All right. Well, this promises to be a yet another great conversation with Dr. Bonnie Singer. I'm very much looking forward to it. Let's get to it. Here is Sucheta's second conversation with Dr. Bonnie Singer.
2: Today, a fellow speech-language pathologist and an expert in language, literacy, and learning, Dr. Bonnie Singer, will be joining us. She is the founder and CEO of the Architects for Learning, where she trains educators and consults with schools worldwide. Dr. Singer received her bachelor's and master's and doctoral degree in communication sciences and disorders from Emerson College, where she has also worked as an instructor and clinical supervisor. In addition, she currently holds an adjunct teaching position in graduate and professional studies at Endicott College. For her entire career, Dr. Singer has been interested in the ways in which language and cognition interrelate to support and constraint language, learning, reading, and writing. With her partner, Dr. Anthony Bashir, she developed Empower, a method for teaching expository writing and brain frames. Graphic Scaffolding for Language, Literacy, Teaching, and Learning. Dr. Singer has authored numerous publications on methods for assessing and teaching writing, reading, listening, speaking, executive functions, self-regulation, higher thinking, and critical literacy. Dr. Singer is committed to the vision that students know how to tackle what comes their way in school and live to the best of their abilities. I can't wait to talk to Bonnie Singer. Welcome to the show, Bonnie. Once again, it's great pleasure to have you for the second time. This time, I'm really hoping that we will be able to address some strategies and your expert experience in this field. So, Bonnie, as you know, in general, the academic success depends on good, strong listening, speaking skills, reading and writing skills. But above all, they dep- really depend on the executive functions that are the backdrop to collaborate and orchestrate all those skills that show showcase academic capacity. But what never really happens is getting specific instructions to learn to learn these skills. So do you have any thoughts about that? Why is the educational system
3: not in a place where it offers learning to learn training? Well, I can't really speak for the entire educational system, but <laughs> I would say that these are just skills that in your typical person develop without having to be taught. Our neurology is developing. We're getting more myelin on our axons and our brain all the way through school. And so, to some degree, just by virtue of being alive and a developing organism, our executive function capacity is continuing to develop all the way through elementary school, middle school, high school, college, and into our mid-20s. I think that our executive function skills are shaped by our experiences for certain. And so if you have people in your life who are engaging with you around the use of strategies and talking with you about how to approach tasks in efficient ways and how to develop systems for yourself to manage the complexities of life that get thrown at you, that helps you manage the complexities of life and and have some fallback strategies. So schools for a really long time have been arming kids with planners and telling them to write down their homework and engage in those kinds of like project management skills that are necessary for later life and success vocationally. But the specifics, the nitty gritty of ins and outs, I think of the way you're thinking about training executive function skills, it's just not the background of your average teacher. It's not not their training. Exactly. But what you and I know, or rather what we are seeing as years
2: progress that students are struggling for a variety of reasons, ultimately that impacts their capacity to take charge of their own education and what's holding them back these executive function-related self-management skills. And how can we create a culture in schools that understands the interplay between developing brain, executive functions, and need for supported learning, in your opinion?
3: I think what drives most teachers is looking at the performance of their students. That's predominantly where they see they get concerned or they are like, he's fine. He's doing exactly what he needs to do. So the door opens for those kinds of conversations with educators around students who need some kind of additional instruction or some kind of additional support in order to be able to meet the expectations of a classroom. You have developed a
2: lot of practical approaches to instruction, and you are a big advocate of teaching explicitly and consistently. Can you share that, share with our listeners what that looks like?
3: Well, I can tell you that method that I'm most well known for and have dedicated a a good chunk of my professional career to developing is a a way of teaching students how to manage academic writing. And that method is called Empower. It was developed in collaboration with my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Anthony Bashir. And it took us a really long time, but the tenets of that were based on observations that I had of the students that I was working with privately, just in individual language therapy. And those kids were coming to me, basically getting a different message about how they should be approaching writing every time they turned around. So their second grade teacher was using different strategies and a different approach than the third grade teacher who had different graphics and a different way of doing things. And the science teacher did things differently than the social studies teacher who was completely different from the ELA teacher. And so we had these vulnerable learners who weren't getting it and were really confused because everybody kept telling them to do it a different way. So our intention was to try and stabilize the process that you need to engage in in order to manage your academic writing assignments and to come up with sort of the universal set of steps the internal dialogue you need to have with yourself, that it's universal no matter how old you are, no matter what grade you know, content area that you're writing in. So we we have a framework that can be used instructionally for starting in second grade. And it's the exact same framework and the exact same set of strategies, even if you're in 12th grade and beyond writing a business plan. And it's The same conversation you're having with yourself and the same set of strategies you're going to tap into, whether you're writing for science or social studies or language arts or your electives and film history or whatever, doesn't matter. The process is the focus, not the actual content. The complexity of assignments will change. The curriculum is going to change depending on where a student is in school. But we wanted to just help take some of the mystery out of how do you... Walk yourself through a very complex task with lots and lots of steps and moving parts and really heavily arm students with how they can organize their thinking in their language.
2: So in other words, you are kind of teaching them task management skills and giving yeah. them that organizational template, which has complete transferability. And it has that framework, which can be expanded as your you go through academic life from middle school to high school, it can be expanded. If you go from high school to college, it can be expanded. And that's such a wonderful and powerful way of teaching executive functions because those with good executive functions have the, I call it, laser vision to see the, or the x-ray vision to see the backbone of information, uh, the way information is laid out or the way information is structured. And those who are able to create a structure for themselves are much more effective in producing, whether it's writing or speaking or whether it's managing a project. So it sounds like Empower does that. Can you give us an example uh, of an assignment? How would Empower look like for
3: a student when that you're teaching? Well, I don't really care what the assignment is. The approach is basically what we did was boil down the whole writing process into 10 questions you have to ask yourself. And our intention was, inspired by some really beautiful work by Carol Sue Englert and a number of her colleagues back in 1988, where she developed a framework for teaching that was very much focused on what's the conversation that's happening around this learning. And she's really committed to the way teachers structure conversations in classroom and how that promotes learning and independence or hinders it. So we were heavily inspired by some of her work and Vygotsky's work and this notion that whenever you're going to do something complicated, you're talking your way through it kind of in your head. And many of the students that I had been working with way in the early stages of us developing this method, when we really probed, you know, what are you saying to yourself? You're staring at this assignment. You're sitting here feeling overwhelmed. You don't know what to do. You can't get yourself started, even though you're brilliant. When we really peeked behind the curtain and found out what it was that they were saying to themselves, it was really awful. They were saying really horrible things like, I can't do this. I hate this. I'm stupid. I got to get out of here. And that's when you see kids in class going, can I go to the nurse? Can I get some water? Can I go to the bathroom? It's all this avoidance strategy because they're overwhelmed and they don't know what to do. So the way we thought about it was from a very, a language way in, right? That's our background is language is how can we guide the conversation that the student is having with himself or herself so that it's a productive conversation. And you, you're approaching this complicated task by just asking yourself these questions and you ask them in the same order every time. And each question elicits the use of a strategy. So my first question is the question kids always ask you, what do I have to do? That's the first thing a kid always says to you when they're staring at their homework and they don't hmm. get it. What do I have to do? So then we teach them a strategy for dissecting the language of the assignment, figuring out what it is that they need to do, getting a good picture in their head of what that end goal game is so that they can actually get themselves started. That's step one. So part of our approach is really change the conversation, structure the conversation, but also give kids a set of strategies that really very explicitly help them organize their thinking, which thinking is very multidimensional, You got to take a couple of passes at that with writing. Writing is linear and sequential. It's sentence after sentence after sentence after sentence. Mm. And you got to put those in a certain order. And then you got to get your paragraphs together in a certain order. And if you don't do it in a logical order, it doesn't make sense. It's very linear and very sequential. But thinking isn't. So there's this big gap between, like, I know so much about Christopher Columbus and I have so many thoughts about this. I don't know where to start with this paper. So We approach the organization challenge of writing through a couple of different passes, a couple of different sets of strategies that chip away at organization. First, let's organize your thoughts and your knowledge, and then let's figure out how to organize your paragraph or your essay and teach kids very explicitly about how text is structured and how it works.
2: You're really talking about helping students use a mind tool of self talk. How can I guide me as I navigate through the demand of a task of writing where I have to produce, which is marry or kind of organize ideas that I already have or the knowledge I already have, and then produce it in a way that will be satisfactory to the expectations of the teacher who's asking me to write this essay or paper or whatever it may be. So this self-talk is a very, very strong mind tool Could you tell us a little bit about visualizing and do you see a a visualizing or using visual imagery as a tool as well? And do you you make use of that in your teaching?
3: We do. We're really, really inspired by some work by David Hierley, who developed a set of graphics that were intended to capture patterns of thinking and cognition. And I worked really closely with David Hierley for a number of years. It's amazing. And slowly sort of morphed um, some of his concepts really from my background, which is more language, and started to look at what are some of the underlying things that we do with language all day, every day? What are the patterns of just talking? You know, so we boiled down into a set of six graphics, a way... Of That's what you
2: call brain detail. frames, right?
3: Yes, we call them brain frames. They're basically a visual depiction of what it looks like to sequence your thoughts. And we sequence to tell a story. You sequence to tell somebody how to do something. You sequence to summarize something historical that that happened in the past. Like we sequence with language all day long. We just don't necessarily know that that's what we're doing. And we make comparisons and we make contrasts and we sort things into categories. And that's why grocery stores are set up the way grocery stores are set up. It's a whole bunch of categories. And so there are these kind of invisible patterns of language use that are hiding behind the listening and speaking and reading and writing demands of school and just conversation that kids are engaged in all day, every day. And we extracted a way to have kids be able to recognize those patterns and draw a picture of what they're trying to do linguistically so they can plan out the organization of their thought. Our original work with this these concepts was way back in nineteen ninety five and ninety six we were working with a very 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 bright fifteen year old boy who was so scattered and disorganized in his communication in his spoken communication. he was extremely bright. it was so hard to understand him because he would start a thought, then change a thought, get halfway through a thought he never finished a thought. it was just this really disjointed, very disorganized way of expressing himself. And so we started working with him. Tony and I did this therapy collaboratively and really concocted how do we help him be more organized in his speaking because nobody can understand him. And we started to play with some of these strategies and helping him to just draw the patterns of you're, you're looking at you know the causes and the effects of the progressive era in your AP history class. How are you going to Plan out how you're going to explain that. And we had such profound results out of this way of working with the student that we presented him as a case study at a national conference, the American Speech Language Hearing Association conference in 1996 96 or 97, way, way back. I think it was 97. And the title of that presentation was What Are Executive Functions? and self-regulation. And what do they have to do with language learning disorders? And we made the case that language and executive functions are interconnected. And that the reason that the student was having such a difficulty expressing himself was because of some fundamental weaknesses within his executive system. And then we detailed our therapeutic approach to helping him. Um, by the way, he's now a litigator for the Justice Department. So it worked. No way. And, oh, beautiful. Um, <laughs> he worked for Barack Obama. I don't think he still has a job <laughs> right now, but he was ultimately, a, became a very successful trial lawyer. And at the time, no one would have guessed that that was the path he was going down as a as a career. But eventually that that the presentation, we were asked to write it up and we published a paper with that same title, what are the yes, yes, functions of regulation and what do they have to do with language learning disorders in 1999. And since then, you know, we've been playing with these concepts of using some visual representations of the pattern of language to help kids organize their language, both when they're talking and when they're writing.
2: So, what you do with talking and writing, as you mentioned, using the visual that 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 mind tool of, of visualizing, conceptualizing, using visual modality. I do that in my work with yeah. the, the concept of future self, giving yeah. students a videographic tool to see themselves. And uh, talk to themselves from their future self. And I find that in- incredibly effective because the students who have no perception of passage of time and they don't have this notion of self-changing over time with effort and particularly a self-enjoying benefits that you have afforded to that future self because of the work you have done. Those are the ones who are not connected or motivated or engaged in the work that needs to happen. And it's a very interesting way of particularly making a change in their planning, organization, and goal management, yeah. but towards a longer future, which is not a paper in three weeks, but really a six months later or a year later. How would you look like? If you remember the book Secret that talked about this, creating these thought boards that you can stick up your ceiling when you lay down, you see yourself in 10 years. That kind of idea, you know? Yeah, Um, yeah. So Bonnie, tell me, as we get ready to conclude this conversation, what would you like to see in the world where you do this beautiful work that will make you believe that or make you feel that you really made a difference?
3: Oh, I see it every day. And the kids that we're working with, they blow my mind and they make it worth getting out of bed every day. I mean, there are small changes. You know, recently I got an email from somebody out of the blue that I worked with 20 years ago who I diagnosed him with dyslexia when he was six years old and worked with him for a long time. When he was little, he had a reading tutor and then I helped him with his writing and something happened. I somehow, I think I moved somehow disconnected with this student, but he, he looked me up over 20 years later and sent me this most beautiful email. There's a blog post on my website with a portion of it where he just wrote to say thank you. He's now a merchant marine. He makes six figures a year. He's oh, wow. wildly successful and respected by his shipmates. And was, we were reflecting on how hard he had worked as a student. He had some real learning challenges. He had ADHD and he had dyslexia and just what that was for him, what kinds of sacrifices he had to make as a young student sometimes for, you know, to go to reading tutorials or extra special ed help or extra speech and language services in the summer, what kinds of things he had to give up. And the thing that he said that just, it made me sob was, I want you to know it was all worth it. And it, you know, it changed his life and he's an awesome adult. He's awesome. And those kinds of, you know, a lot of times you do this work, you pour yourself into little kids or big kids. We see a lot of kids now in college and we have a college program for kids with executive function challenges in my office here. And so all ages, I've had the pleasure and honor of working with kids of all ages my whole career. To see their success is extraordinary. And sometimes success for a student is just the teeniest little shift, you know, the teeniest little shift. I'm I'm following this little boy with Mosaic Kleinfelter syndrome, which is a very rare syndrome with lots of challenges to it. And he is just an extraordinary being. And I I went to his team meeting the other day and for the first time in the five years that I've been following him, I watched him read and then noticed that he had made a mistake in how he was pronouncing a word and stop and self-correct. And it was monumental. Like, I wanted to stand on the top of the desk in the classroom and go, he did it. He noticed. (laughs) That is so huge that his brain stopped, that he noticed, that he realized that doesn't make sense. I can fix it. He used a repair. I mean, they're teeny little successes that you see in students every day, and it just keeps you going. It's what it's all about. Thank you, Bonnie, for all
2: that you do. And I'm so. Happy that you you shared those stories with our listeners. Yes, as you said, the you're pouring all of you and life changes, even if it is a tiny bit, It's the direction that sets them on a path for of success forever. Yeah. So before we let you go, should anyone have any questions, Bonnie, and or want
3: to learn more about your work, where should they go? The best places of our website. It's uh, architectsforlearning.com.
2: Thank you so much for making the time and uh, joining me on this podcast, Bonnie.
3: It was my pleasure. Thank you
1: so much. Wow. Another great conversation with Dr. Bonnie Singer-Sajeda. What a a great chat that was.
2: It truly was. I think the reason I'm going to take a minute to give an overview of the whole process of writing, because it's such an important academic skill and it is extremely essential, but not a lot of thought goes into how does it develop? How does it get mastered? So quickly, if you think about writing, to write, we need ideas. And where do these ideas come from? They come from reading. Then they come from understanding what you have read. The most important executive functions that go into writing is one needs to use a internal personal filter to decide the relevance and importance of that idea that you want to talk about. So once you've settled down on the right ideas that you want to convey, then you need a little map, a map of writing. And you need details to support those ideas. So those details, again, come back from the text or the reading or understanding that you have done. Without details, you can't really expand on what, you have, what your understanding is. And that's what we do in writing. And finally, you need a method to elaborate that using the structure that exists. We call it beginning paragraph. We call it body. We call it conclusion paragraph we call it a punchline or the statement that we make in the, uh, the thesis that we support through our writing and then we do a conclusion of it. This orchestration of idea expression is what collectively we call writing. And Pani did, a, did a, such a good job of helping our listeners understand that.
1: And thank you for giving us an overview of that. Uh, so thinking on that, uh, so walk us through how reading, writing, and planning are connected to each other.
2: They certainly are very much internally connected. And that's her first takeaway, that language and executive functions are interlinked and reading and writing is what makes language and planning and organizing is what executive functions are. There are enough smart students that can't express themselves because of the problems with executive functions. And the outline that I discussed earlier, what writing constitutes, the executive dysfunction makes it harder for these students to express their understanding in a, in a sequential, organized manner. And that's where language meets a plan and then plan is executed into writing. So
1: why should educators teach reading and writing explicitly?
2: Well, that was the biggest point that Bonnie emphasized. And that's a second takeaway from my own experience of being in this field of training students to develop these complex abilities related to writing the point that I see, and Bonnie also shares with me, that teachers have no specific background in teaching executive functions. They are left to evaluate a performance. And when you evaluate performance, then you are deducing what made a performance a stellar performance and what made a performance a poor performance educational system has nothing formal in place to teach skills that are related to learning to write so every teacher sees it differently and every teacher works differently with the struggling student so the struggling student who has fundamental difficulty in in kind of seeing the skeleton of written language then is very much dependent on teacher's instructions. And the teacher instructs those parts of writing that pertains to his or her content knowledge. So history teacher may be uh, focused on teaching analytical writing science teacher is working on analysis synthesis writing. And the student's job is to kind of integrate the two. And that may not happen successfully all the time.
1: Okay, so... Bonnie discussed how self-talk is used as a mind tool. So what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, and Bonnie has spent a lot of time researching this field of self-guided, self-directed talk, which means the student is talking to himself about what he is doing or what he is about to do. And she, in fact, has put together this EMPOWER system, which is an acronym, of course, and we will link it on our podcast website, uh, empowers a system which is a 10-question, the guided questions that students can ask themselves to complete a writing assignment. So what this actually allows is it allows the student to externalize the actual process of executing a plan. And this also stabilizes the academic writing process. So talking to yourself to go from step one to step two and then going from step two to step three is a... Instead of relying on external cues from a teacher, the student can guide himself through those conversations he can have with himself.
1: Obani also mentioned using visual aids. So, any comments on that?
2: There's a lot of work that has been done in the field of using graphic organizers as tools for writing. I began by describing the writing process, and I said that writing is elaborating on the ideas we have. And many students with executive dysfunction struggle in even conceptualizing their own ideas. And so the brain frames that Bonnie talks about, which is six graphics that she uses or that she has researched, can be a great starting point that students can use to map their own ideas before they get into elaborating and expanding on those ideas and then coming down to the process of editing and evaluating the writing. So this visual depiction of the thought sequences can really help students who cannot do that in in their working memory. What's the most important thing that parents and teachers need to remember about this, that language is very pattern centric and it has its own patterns that depicts beginning, middle and end. And we in cognitive neuroscience call that schemas and those schemas can be expanded and collapsed into compact things. And when a good teacher or, or tutor or trainer focuses on the teaching those templates, it can really improve or enhance listening skills, speaking skills, and eventually writing and, and then conveying ideas uh, in many forms of writing. In conclusion, I want to emphasize writing is a complex process and it calls on orchestrating many, many underlying cognitive abilities. So we must teach writing and we must teach writing using aids or tools. And in end, the important part of teaching writing should include how a student chooses the right tool for himself. And that is how I see a successful writer emerging from the process of teaching writing.
1: Hmm. An awful lot of really important stuff to ponder here. And as I said, Sucheta, a great conversation with Dr. Bonnie Singer. Unfortunately, all the time we have for today, so on behalf of our host, Sucheta Kamath, and all of us at Cerebral Matters, thanks for listening today and we look forward to seeing you next week on Full Prefrontal.
0: Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.